Hi, I'm Paul Haverschrud, host of The Cost of Living. It's a show about money and how it shapes our lives. In big ways, like why inflation could get worse if we all make more money. Here's the hard truth in all of this. Workers are going to have to eat that real wage loss. And small ways, like what's the fastest way to order fast food? That first Big Mac that comes out of the kitchen is going to the drive-thru. Check out The Cost of Living. We're on CBC Listen or wherever you get podcasts. This is a CBC Podcast. Hello, I'm Neil Kirksall. And I'm Chris Howden. This is As It Happens, the podcast edition. Tonight. Stalled, an Egyptian aid worker has thousands of tons of food and medical supplies sitting in trucks waiting to go into Gaza. But so far, there's no safe way to get those supplies across the border to the Palestinians who desperately need them. Living a nightmare, 75-year-old Holocaust historian Alex Danzig is believed to be among the hostages taken by Hamas. From Israel, his son tells us all he wants is for his government to bring his father home. Income taxis bogged down by wait times, paramedics in Ottawa will soon be offering some patients a new way to get to the hospital, not by ambulance, but by cab. The unmitigated gallery. The late Silvio Berlusconi bought thousands of terrible works of art from shopping channels, and now his heirs are finding that he's painting them into a corner. Clearly someone sang like a canary. An Italian pop star and his wife have been arrested for allegedly working with a mafia organization. A journalist tells us it was just a matter of time before they faced the music. And playing catch-up. With an eye to writing some historic slights, the Strong Museum of Play calls on the public to decide which overlooked toy of the past will finally earn a place in the Toy Hall of Fame. As it happens, the Friday edition... Radio that's glad to hear they're leveling the plaything field. The trucks are lined up, filled to capacity with much-needed supplies for Gaza, but they're not moving because Egypt's Rafah border crossing is still closed. Earlier this week, the U.S. said an agreement had been reached for some trucks to get through, but so far that has not happened. And to sustain people in Gaza, hundreds of trucks are required every day. Today, U.N. Secretary General Antonio Guterres visited the Rafa border crossing to push for the aid deliveries to start. Mohsen Sarhan is the CEO of the Egyptian Food Bank. We reached him in Arish, Egypt. Mohsen, what is in the trucks that you're trying to get across the border to Gaza? What are the supplies inside? Right now, we have more than uh, 4,000 metric tons. A couple of days ago, there were 3,000, but uh, many trucks joined us uh, today. We have uh, essential medical supplies. Uh, We have anesthetics and antibiotic vials because people there now are doing surgeries without anesthetics. And we have, of course, uh, many trucks of food, uh, ready-to-eat food, uh, water, of course. uh, uh, And, of course, there are multiple uh, planes now in Arish Airport from the International Development Assistance that haven't been even unloaded yet because uh, the, the city is, is, almost, uh, is, is almost full of supplies. How many people will the supplies that are there in the trucks right now, how many people in Gaza will those supplies help? So we have sent uh, 41 trucks. Mm-hmm. They have uh, 50,000 boxes. Uh, so they can last 50,000 families for two weeks. How would you describe, Mohsan, the emotion you feel personally, given the work you do, 
having all of that aid there and not being able to send it across the border? I'm angry. Uh, I'm, I'm disappointed um, uh, specifically in the USA. I have lived in America and I studied there and I have many friends there and we try to, to make a place together. And now today I was disappointed again in the United Nations, which is supposedly to be the ultimate peacekeeping authority in the world. Even the head of the United Nations couldn't convince Israel to stop the killing, even for a few hours. Now our hope is just they, they stop killing for, 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 for a while while we get the aid in. You were at the Rafah crossing earlier today. Can you describe what you saw at the Rafah crossing earlier today? Uh, today there, there were thousands of people uh, uh, with all the trucks, around 200 trucks, and then uh, uh, Antonio Guterres came and his, it's, it's, it's a very mild uh, speech that he uh, that he gave, that there are conditions that uh, still, I think, Israel is putting without any elaboration. We as aid workers, we have been sleeping with the trucks now. For, I'm the CEO of the Egyptian Food Bank. I shouldn't be here, but I'm, there are no job for me. My, my people here are more than capable of doing everything, but I came just for solidarity. And I've been here for, for, for seven or eight days, and I'm watching people being bombed on the other side. Uh, and we're just watching all this, and we have the food, and we cannot deliver it. Egypt, as you know, blames those Israeli airstrikes for preventing the border from opening, from keeping the border from opening. The UN's humanitarian chief, Martin Griffiths, told BBC that Egypt is reluctant to allow the crossing to open because they're worried about an influx of Palestinian refugees. So do you feel that the Egyptian government shares some of the blame for the delay in opening the crossing? They, they share 0% of the blame. Rafah crossing, we are not crossing through the crossing because we will die. The Egyptian authorities do not want us to pass because we will be killed. That's it. There is a question, you know, when I can I can say from, from Canadian officials, as they've announced aid for Gaza and for the Palestinian people, they've always made sure to, to say that they will make sure aid will not get into the hands of Hamas. So what do you say to people who are listening and are concerned that Hamas may intercept the aid that is meant for innocent civilians? Okay, this is exactly like saying uh, I will go to Canada and I want only to give aid to people of German origin. This is insanity. And this is exactly what Israel is doing to prevent aid from going. So how would I know? I have four or five people standing in front of me and they are all starving. How would I know if one of them is Hamas or not? Hamas is not written on IDs. How should they respond, do you think, when what has happened in their country, Hamas militants have taken hostages and killed people, and they say they need to retaliate? I'm an aid worker. Yeah. So I cannot comment on, on, on such a political level, but I will speak for, on a very micro level. Uh, if someone does something to me, I have to re- retaliate with the same amount of force. What's happening now is way beyond self-defense. We talked about uh, Antonio Guterres's visit. Uh, do you have any yeah. sense or or hope or, at, at this point, you know, not long after he's spoken, that there is going to be movement? Uh, the vibes or the uh, the reflections I get I got from his speech is that uh, the UN, uh, even the highest official of peace in the world. Uh, doesn't have uh, any 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 authority to tell Israel to stop the killing. We've spoken to people uh, in Gaza over the last two weeks now. A doctor in a hospital talking about um, not having you know water pressure to sterilize 
medical tools. Oh, we yes. spoke to a gentleman yesterday, a Canadian who's go- trying to get his family out. He's going to stay. Uh, he said that there's a, a lack of water, a lack of clean water. So from the people you've spoken to, the Palestinians in Gaza, what are they telling you about what they need and how long they can keep going like this? Uh, the priority, the absolute priority is uh, anesthetics. Imagine this, that someone, you're doing a, a, a surgery on, on them without anesthetics. Uh, they need antibiotics because uh, the wounds get infected after the, the surgeries and people die because they do not have antibiotics. Uh, they need equipment to get the dead from the rubble of the buildings because now they cannot keep up with the death. So they just leave people under the rubble. I can hear um, frustration in your voice, certainly, as someone who... I'm very frustrated, very frustrated. I'm very frustrated because I have the medicine and I cannot give it to them. There is nothing I can do except I'm trying to speak up and I'm trying to make the world understand that this is an asymmetric warfare. This is an asymmetric warfare in information, in messaging, in context, in everything. Whatever happened with Hamas, yes, they killed many Israelis and the whole world is mourning. The answer is not wiping out the population because there will be a million orphans that will be a million Hamases. And the world will pay that price for decades to come. Mohsen, thank you for your time. Sure. Mohsen Sarhan is the CEO of the Egyptian Food Bank. We reached him in Arish, Egypt. This afternoon, news broke that Hamas had released two American hostages, a mother and daughter, a glimmer of hope for friends and families across Israel whose loved ones were taken by Hamas and who continue to wait and wonder if they will ever come home. The family of 75-year-old historian Alex Danzig hasn't heard from him since the day gunmen launched a brutal attack on the near Oz kibbutz on October 7th. And people in Poland are also hoping and campaigning for his safe return. That's because Mr. Danzig, the son of Holocaust survivors, didn't just spend his early childhood there. He has spent the last three decades educating Jews and Poles about the Holocaust. Matty Danzig is Alex's son. We reached him today in Elat, Israel, before the news of the released hostages broke. Matty, nearly two weeks now since the attack on your on your kibbutz, have you had any news about your father? No, I don't have any news. We hope he's still alive uh, in Gaza, and we hope uh, the government uh, will do what she should do, uh, bring him back home. Him and many others, hundreds of people, they they should be home. Have you received confirmation, Maddie, that he was taken? We knew all the time that mm-hmm. he was he was he was taken. Uh, lately, they also confirmed that his phone was. Uh, signal was in Gaza, so there's no doubt about it. I know you have children. Are, are those who I can hear behind you? No, no, just uh, I'm outside in the porch in the hotel, so the sounds of the children, it's, it's not my children. But yeah. I have three daughters that were with me in the kibbutz in the, in the day of the massacre, and we were very lucky to come out uh, alive. We were one, one of the few houses that, that didn't get it, so we were very lucky. How are how are your children doing now? Uh, my daughters are okay. They continue their life. Uh, you know, the children can 
can overcome things like this maybe better than adults. We are, uh, everyone here, devastated. More than 25% of the kibbutz are either murdered, uh, brutally murdered, or been kidnapped to hell. So we are in a very, very difficult condition. How was your father's health before he was taken? His health was uh, was okay because he took his medicine. He had uh, four years ago. He had severe heart attacks, and uh, so uh, he, he had he had to take his medicine. Other, so we are very worried. Time is very very important. Like there's no time to waste. Uh, the government that uh, made this horrible failure should pay back for these people that were kidnapped. Yes, they should pay back. This is my brother. Earlier you were saying, Maddie, uh, that you wanted the government to do what it needs to do to to get your dad and the other yeah. hostages back. We know yesterday Israel's defense minister visited troops at the Gaza border and told them to, quote, be ready, that they would soon see Gaza, quote, from the inside. How are you okay. feeling today about the possibility of a ground invasion? Uh, look, I'm I'm just a citizen. I'm not a military person, so I don't uh, I don't understand in a subject like that. I'm mm-hmm. I'm a teacher for, for the last uh, five fifteen years. They need to do what they need to do. It's their job. They left us. They left us alone to die, to be massacred. For hours and hours, nobody came to help us. They just slaughtered and, and burned us alive. And their, their, their responsibility is to bring back all these people that were kidnapped. This should be the first priority. I just want to make sure I'm understanding you correctly, Maddie. You're outraged, obviously, at the, at the people who attacked you at Hamas. But it also sounds like you're angry at the IDF. Yeah. Of course I'm angry. I'm angry with this horrible government that is ruining Israel for the last few months and the intelligence force of Israel failed failed to know about this operation, this very big operation of Hamas. It's not like in one day they decided, let's go. Amadi, people in Poland are also doing what they can to raise awareness about your father and the situation he is in right now. What did you think when you heard about what they're doing? We're trying to get help in, uh, in any way we can. Mm-hmm. My father is a Polish citizen. Mm-hmm. He was born in Poland. All, uh, all the relatives of uh, his side, from uh, the parents, uh, di- uh, was murdered in the Holocaust. Uh, his parents was, were able to survive the Holocaust. He was born after the, after the war in uh, 1948. And uh, when he was nine years old, they came to Israel. And... Since then, all his grown-up life, he dedicated to education uh, of, of the Holocaust and the dialogue between uh, Jews and uh, Polish. And he have a lot of uh, students and uh, colleagues that uh, love him very much and uh, respect mm-hmm. his knowledge. He's a very, very uh, impressive teacher. And he done a lot for, for this subject to both countries. Yeah, he's, he's a Polish citizen, and uh, the Polish uh, government also should uh, should do whatever they can uh, to bring him back. What I've read of, of your father and those who were taught by him and knew him, people speak very warmly about those experiences and his passion for what he taught. 
What do you think he might say to you to help you keep going at this time? I think, uh, first of all, he will be glad to know that uh, all his family survived this uh, horrible attack. Yeah, it's it's a complicated question. I, I didn't mm-hmm. thought about it. I I think he would he would uh, told me to to keep going for my for our child, for his grandchild, to try to make this world a better place. Uh, even though even though there are people that lost uh, all trace of uh, humanity. When did you last speak to your dad, Maddie? Can you share what you talked about? Actually, my dad was uh, was the one that informed me that uh, there are terrorists in the kibbutz. It was just when uh, it all started. It's six uh, thirty in the morning, and uh, my brother Yuval spoke with him. And this was the last uh, time that anybody spoke with him. It was after two hours, eight thirty, and then when we tried to call him back, there was no answer. He was trying to make sure his family knew where he was and that you were all safe as well. Yeah, of course. Yeah. Yeah. Well, Maddie, I appreciate your time and thank you. Thank you. Thank you very much. Take care. Take care. Bye. Maddie Danzig is the son of Alex Danzig, who is believed to be among around 200 hostages taken by Hamas. We reached him in Elat earlier today. This is a clip from one of Tony Colombo's most popular songs. In English, it translates to I'm waiting for you at the altar. And in the music video, which has almost 60 million views on YouTube, you can see him lovingly serenading his wife, Tina Rispoli. Mr. Colombo is a star in the Italian music genre called Neomelodica, which has been criticized for glamorizing organized crime and not coincidentally for being especially popular among mafia members. Well, this week, Mr. Colombo and his wife were both arrested, along with 25 other people, for alleged ties to the Camorra, the infamous Naples Mafia organization. Sasha Biazzo is an investigative journalist for FanPage, an online news site based in Naples. He's in New York. Sasha, I know you've reported on Tony Colombo's relationship with the Camorra before. Were you surprised to hear that he'd been arrested? I was not surprised. Uh, I think that um, we were like waiting for this moment because the evidences that we found when we did our investigation was very clear. And the relationship between this singer and uh, his wife and uh, the Lauro clan was very clear. And also in the last years, there were like different moments where uh, we told that the prosecutor were very close to arrest. So the arrests happened during a raid. In that raid, Italian police say they seized assets uh, that that are worth about $11.5 million, that's Canadian dollars, or 8 million euros. What exactly are Colombo and his wife accused of doing? 
the singer Tony Colombo and his wife Tina Rispoli uh, got married in 2019. Uh, allegedly did business with uh, Didi Lauro clan of Secondigliano, in particular by financing the setting up of an illegal cigarette factory uh, that was saved uh, by law enforcement. And for the deal, Tony Colombo and Tina Rispoli participated uh, as financiers with uh, 35,000 uh, euros through Raffaele Rispoli, that is uh, the brother of uh, Tina Rispoli. And he was also accused in the past to be part of the um, Camorra Mafia. For people who, who are just learning about the Camorra, one of the most uh, well-known in the Italian mafia, one of the oldest, dating back to the 17th century. But what have you learned in, in your reporting about how this, this singer, very popular singer, got involved with them? So the relationship uh, between uh, the singer and his wife started a long time ago. When Tony Colombo arrived in Naples, because Tony Colombo is from Sicily, okay, so in another region, and he arrived like when he was 18 in Naples, and uh, he started to be the singer of the mafia family of uh, Tina Rispoli, that was uh, the wife of one of the most powerful boss in uh, in Naples. And uh, uh, according to Sam Pentito, uh, Justice uh, collaborators, Tony Colombo received a huge amount of money from this mafia family to develop his albums, uh, his concerts. And so from that moment, he was involved in the affairs of the family. And now today we know that uh, of course, as has always happened, uh, the family wanted something back. And in this case, uh, the, the Lauro clan asked for money to develop this cigarette factory. What's the reaction now that they've been arrested? Are people, uh, you know, just Italians who, who knew of them, are they angry about the arrest? Are they, uh, do they think it was, it was overdue? What are you hearing? Uh, it is difficult to say what, what the reaction was. Uh, to the news uh, of the Arab, because there is certainly a section of fans and supporters uh, of the couple who obviously defend them. But I can say that a large part of the public opinion by now was aware of his wife's singers' ties to the Camorra Mafia, uh, because I, I have to repeat, she's the widow of one of the most powerful Camorra bosses. And also her brothers had been arrested uh, to Mafia-type crimes. So few really believe that she had sev uh, severed uh, ties with the mafia, mm -hmm. uh, as she also claimed. Before we let you go, Sasha, a, a lot of our listeners may just be learning about Nia Melodica for the first time uh, as well. Mm -hmm. And we should mention this is not the first time an artist in this musical genre has been accused of having ties to organized crime. So why is Nia Melodica so linked to the mafia? So usually... Uh, when uh, some of the members of these uh, mafia families want to organize uh, a birthday party or a wedding party, they want the most popular singer of the area. Right. And sometimes the singer became part of the family. As in Tony Colombo case, he started to, to sing to the every form of celebration of the Marino family, of the Tina Rispoli family. Mm -hmm. 
and uh, it happened that uh, he became a member of the family and now we know that uh, he was also involved in the business of the family Sasha I appreciate your time thank you Okay thank you too Sasha Biazzo is an investigative journalist for FanPage an online news site based in Naples he's in New York Some art collections are like this. But the late Silvio Berlusconi's art collection is more like this. Or, you know how some art collections are like this? Well, the collection assembled by the late Silvio Berlusconi is kind of more like this. What I'm trying to say is that professional art collections are majestic, they're carefully curated and spiritually moving, whereas the art collection of the notorious former Prime Minister of Italy, who died in February, is none of the above. It looks like it was bought from shopping channels late at night by someone with a predictable but creepy fixation on female nudes. That might sound mean, but according to Vittorio Sgarbi, an art critic and friend of the late Mr. Berlusconi, it's just an accurate description. He really did buy most of his paintings off the TV while suffering from insomnia, and he really did have lousy taste. Mr. Sgarbi says that out of the entire collection of 25,000 paintings, only six or seven have any artistic value. Yeah, I I did say that there are 25,000 paintings, landscapes, cityscapes, religious iconography, and what the BBC refers to as vivid images of naked women. Mr. Berlusconi spent somewhere in the vicinity of 20 million euros, around $29 million Canadian, on all that junk. And said junk is all being stored in a giant warehouse at a cost of 800,000 euros a year. It was, anyway. Apparently, most or all of that art is being moved to a giant outdoor storage unit that seagulls hang around, or just burned. As Vittorio Sgarbi told La Repubblica, I don't know if the destruction of those paintings has already started. I do know that, at least on an artistic level, it wouldn't be a crime. It seems like a fitting fate for a collection that aimed to be this. But wasn't even as good as this.
If you're in a hurry, you opt to take a taxi. If it's a medical emergency, you probably call an ambulance. In most places, that is an either-or. But that's not necessarily the case in Ottawa, thanks to a pilot program scheduled to launch next month. Starting November 1st, patients with less urgent ailments who meet the criteria will have the option of taking a cab to the hospital instead of an ambulance. The effort is aiming to help free up more ambulances and paramedics. Pierre Poirier is the chief of the Ottawa Paramedic Service. We reached him in Ottawa. So, Pierre, if someone's having a medical emergency and things are are so bad that they've called 911, why would they want to take a taxi to the hospital? Well, first and foremost, if it's life-threatening, absolutely they'll go with the paramedic crew in the ambulance to the hospital. Uh, There's a full recognition that the paramedic will be doing a clinical assessment Mm -hmm. to determine a small subset of patients who do not have a life-threatening injury who may benefit from having a taxi ride to the hospital. So what types of calls fit into to that category? You know, we call them low acuity, but it's usually a call where somebody may have twisted an ankle and the paramedic will consult with uh, a physician and the physician may say, well, within 24 hours, that individual may benefit from having a, an x-ray. So there's someone who would benefit from going to the hospital or to a clinic, which could be an alternate destination, uh, but doesn't require the paramedic's attendance or the ambulance to take them to the hospital. And so in, the, in that screening process, what's the checklist as they decide uh, the check- ambulance or no ambulance? Yeah, so the checklist is first, you know, is this life-threatening or not? There may be another checklist of whether or not this even warrants going to the hospital or warrants going to another facility or alternate uh, destination, which would and result in a cancellation. What we're trying to do is give the patient a third choice that may be that they can take a taxi to the hospital or to an alternate care facility. And an important part of that is in Ontario right now, pharmacists are able to prescribe. So if somebody had a urinary tract infection, Mm -hmm. this might be quite appropriate to put them in a taxi and have them go to a pharmacist. Are people calling ambulances for that? Amazingly, people call ambulances because it's their emergency and they call them for a wide variety of reasons. You know, we make this assumption that every call is life-threatening when somebody calls, and for the individual, it may. But once the paramedic arrives, often mm-hmm. it is not life-threatening, and that's why this option is so valuable. You know, our motivation here is we're trying to build a capacity in the system, which means that if that paramedic didn't transport that person to the hospital, didn't get stuck in the hospital for two, three, four hours, that that paramedic crew is now available to do that next call of service. Because the life here in Ottawa for the paramedic is there's a call in the queue waiting. Could you not hire more paramedics? Would that help deal with the Um, influx of calls as well? I would say that's an interesting question, Um, particularly because there isn't an unlimited supply of paramedics. But it isn't the fact that we just need more paramedics We need the system to evolve, the healthcare system, because not everybody actually has to go to the emergency department. Mm -hmm. We're kind of opening the door to other options. So we call it safe alternate transportation, also to safe alternate destinations. And and from the patient's perspective, if, you know, when they're presented with that option, take a taxi, what's the selling point for them? Is it it speed? Um, You know, first and foremost, I think uh, individuals are rational uh, and they can understand the options that they may be provided. There's often a myth, and uh, this is something that we try to debunk, is the fact that if you go in an ambulance, you will get a quicker service than if you walk in 
to the hospital. And the truth is, arguably, your service will not be any different in terms of being seen by a physician. Now, if it's life and death, uh, we hope that you will call us to take you in and we will get quick service. But we're not talking about the patients who are in a life and death situation. We're talking about the patients who may need a physician or a hospital service, but there's nothing urgent about it. So there isn't going to be anything quicker by coming with yeah. the paramedic crew. I, I think uh, you raise a, a good point because I think a lot of people do think if I if I come in an ambulance, they'll know it's serious and they'll make sure I'm treated right away. You're saying that's not going to be the case. They're going to assess you when you that's try correct. to check yeah. in. Yeah, yeah the, the hospitals and their staff, the nurses are pretty sophisticated in terms of their triage processes. And they triage the patient that comes with the paramedic crew no differently than somebody walks in the door. And in terms of the the taxi side of things, are you working with a particular company and screening drivers, or is it just someone would call a cab or a rideshare, use their rideshare app as they might? uh, In the future, rideshares might be something uh, to consider, but right now we're working with a taxi service provider, and we're working through all the, I would say, the the legal uh, agreement, uh, because we really want to do this safely and make sure that we put in the appropriate safeguards uh, for the patient, but also for the uh, taxi service and the taxi driver who's providing that service. You told uh, members of Ottawa City Council's Emergency and Protective Services Committee that, quote, in a perfect world, we would not be doing this. So was there a particular case or a moment that brought you to this? I think it's an understanding and an appreciation that the hospital issues and the healthcare issues are not going away. And more specifically, over the last five years, the offload delay at hospitals has been increasing year in, year out. And honestly, for all the work that's being done, it hasn't resolved the issue for paramedics that uh, we spend, you know, two, three, four hours waiting with a patient, a low acuity patient, no different than somebody in the waiting room. And that ties up two paramedics. And we're trying to avoid that. 900 hours last year where no ambulances were available. Is, is that right? Um, in 2022, it was over 72,000 minutes, and I think that worked out to almost uh, seven weeks, mm-hmm. uh, where we had a call in the queue that we could not immediately respond to. Uh, this year, it's not far off. Uh, I think we're over 32,000 minutes, which is over 500 hours. Uh, once again, that's like 22 days, and uh, the mm-hmm. year isn't done yet. So we've mm-hmm. done a little bit better, but my objective is not to have any occasions of level zero. Pierre, thanks for your time. Thank you for the opportunity. Pierre Poirier is the chief of the Ottawa Paramedic Service. He's in Ottawa. Hello, I'm Jess Milton. For 15 years, I produced The Vinyl Cafe with the late, great Stuart McLean. Every week, more than 2 million people tuned in to hear funny, fictional, feel-good stories about Dave and his family. We're excited to welcome you back to the warm and welcoming world of The Vinyl Cafe with our new podcast, Backstage at The Vinyl Cafe. Each week, we'll share two hilarious stories by Stuart, and for the first time ever, I'll tell you what it was like behind the scenes. Subscribe for free wherever you get your podcasts. According to various children's stories and movies, every toy's highest ambition is simply to be played with by children. That's a sweet idea. 
and total nonsense. What toys truly and desperately want is to be inducted into the Toy Hall of Fame at the Strong Museum of Play in New York. This year, there are 12 worthy finalists, including Battleship, Bop It, Connect Four, and that doll that's Barbie's boyfriend, whatever his name is. But additionally this year, for the Hall of Fame's 25th anniversary, there is a nomination list of five forgotten toys, of which only one will be chosen. These nominees include a toy you loved as a child and may have been less fond of if you're a parent. Chris Bench is the Vice President for Collections at the Strong Museum of Play. We reached him in Rochester, New York. Chris, besides what we heard there, the Fisher-Price corn popper, what are the other forgotten toys, the four remaining? The four remaining are My Little Pony, the Pogo Stick, (laughs) Pez, and Transformers action figures. Okay, those are a lot of heavy hitters in the toy world. Uh, My Little Pony, to me... They meant a lot to me growing up. Transformers, too. Loved them. Still have the, the McDonald's uh, Transformer toys. But why have they not been, why are they not already inducted? You know, that is what we are trying to address with the Forgotten <laughs> Five. These are the always a bridesmaid, never a bride toys that have gotten just that close to being inducted. And this is the chance for listeners, toy fans everywhere to weigh in and they can directly pick what gets into the Hall of Fame. And and I think they should absolutely have a say. Why has it taken so long, though, do you think? The gatekeepers in the toy industry, what do they have against My Little Pony and the Transformers? Pogo stick? Well, the the gatekeepers (laughs) are only here at the Strong National Museum of Play. And each year we hear from literally thousands of people. This year they nominated more than 300 different toys. And we have to sift those down to a dozen that best fit our criteria, our big criteria of longevity, recognition factor, and great play value. And so there's always deserving toys that are both in the 12 finalists that we consider each year and then are waiting in the wings. Do you have a favorite? I think it's time for My Little Pony to have their time in the spotlight, in the center ring, whatever metaphor you want to use. (laughs) Are you just saying that because I voiced my love for them? I I am not. I think (laughs) My Little Pony is kind of the Barbie of the toy horse world. (laughs) And I think that possibility of styling the mane and tail, all of that that is so big with lots of kids, makes them a really compelling plaything. But I mean, then Transformers... They transform. <laughs> so. they, they do. I could be happy with either one of those. Okay. So is this, is this the first time that the public, toy fans that are not at the museum, get to, to weigh in on this? Usually, as you yes. said, it's, it's the team there, right? It is usually a national selection committee, which is about two dozen people who are experts in child development and toy history and creative processes So they're the ones, they're kind of the academy in our own little academy awards. So this is the chance for the public to say loud and clear what they want to get into the National Toy Hall of Fame. And let's talk a bit about the toys that were selected by the committee, though, because there's many others being inducted as well. Can you give us some of the highlights there? Sure. There are a dozen toys for consideration. The winners will get in on November 9th. Mm -hmm. So amongst those are things like baseball cards, battleship, bingo, boppet, 
choose-your-own-adventure game books, mm-hmm. the Little Tykes Cozy Coop, those yellow and red vehicles that may be up and down <laughs> your front sidewalk. Yeah. One that has gotten overlooked a number of times as well is Nerf. Uh, really? New mm-hmm. impossible inductee is Slime, Teenage Mutant Ninja Turtles, so many great options. Well, I, I think there's some Teenage Mutant Ninja Turtle fans out there that are probably... Uh, Wishing that was one that they could go all go all in on, and there's so it's really surprising that some of these because they're they've been around a long time. A lot of the things that you listed, so the fact that they're not even in in uh, the museum yet is interesting to hear. Are the newer toys edging them out? But longevity is a is a factor. You said right, so not necessarily newer toys. So last year the spinning top got in. So there's a toy that goes back to prehistory, yes. but it was accompanied by the Light Bright uh, product from the Favorite. 1960s. Mm-hmm. So it's all over the map. Interesting. Interesting. What have you seen from your vantage point, you know, how toys have evolved? One of the wonderful things that I hear here at the Strong Museum, the refrain from people who are 8 or 88 is I had one of those, and it's said with a tone like, I hadn't thought about that in years. It's such a powerful emotion to see toys that were important to you and are bring you back to a moment of recall that you're ready to share with the people that you're visiting the museum with. It's really lovely. As much as I love art museums, very few of us get to walk in and say, oh, look, it's just like Armone. Yeah. <laughs> Me neither. So is there one that is a favorite to win of of the Forgotten Five? How is it looking right now in terms of the polls? I am not at liberty to say, Mm -hmm. but I will say that we've had 25,000 votes. Uh, Voting ends at midnight on Tuesday, October 24th, and everyone can vote at our website, museumofplay.org. I do have to ask you, you mentioned, you know, traditional award shows, the Academy Awards, for example, there's huge lobbying, campaigning that happens. But sometimes there's allegations of, you know, bribery even to get there to get their movies chosen. How do you make sure it's all on the up and up? I, I maybe I should not be flattered, but no one has so much as offered me a free fries with my burger to get their favorite (laughs) toy into the Hall of Fame. So uh, I have not had my ethical instincts challenged in any way over the years, the 25 years we've been inducting toys into the Hall of Fame. So I'm going to take that as a good thing that they know that this is such a (laughs) moral and rigorous process that there is no hope for trying to put a thumb on the scales. Glad to hear it, Chris. Thank you. Thanks for having me. Take care. That was Chris Bench, the Vice President for Collections at the Strong Museum of Play. We reached him in Rochester, New York. For Dan Pallotta, work has always been personal. When he started working as a fundraiser, it was in response to the AIDS crisis and the suffering that he had witnessed firsthand as a gay man who saw too many of his own friends die. And when he started doing the work he's doing now, it was in response to how the previous venture ended. In the 1990s, my company created the long-distance AIDS ride bicycle journeys and the 60-mile-long breast cancer three-day walks. 
And over the course of nine years, we had 182,000 ordinary heroes participate, and they raised a total of $581 million. 2002 was our most successful year ever. We netted for breast cancer alone, that year alone, $71 million after all expenses. And then we went out of business, suddenly and traumatically. That's an excerpt from Dan Pilata's hugely successful TED Talk entitled, The Way We Think About Charity is Dead Wrong. It's a speech with a simple message, that the standards to which we hold nonprofits are hampering their ability to affect the kind of change the world needs, and that relative to how we allow for-profit companies to operate, the standards are a double standard. The premise received its fair share of pushback when Mr. Pilata first gave his TED Talk in 2013, but it also received nearly five and a half million views. Now it's the subject of the new film, Uncharitable. The documentary is directed by Stephen Gyllenhaal, and it's screening next week at Hot Docs in Toronto. We reached Mr. Gyllenhaal in Los Angeles and Dan Pilata in Topsfield, Massachusetts, for a feature conversation. Dan, Stephen, welcome to As It Happens. Thank you. Glad to be here. Dan, nice to be here. Dan, I'll start with, with what we just heard there, what you were referencing in your TED Talk. When Pilata Teamworks goes out of business, we'll talk in a moment about the why of all of that. But I wanted to get a sense from you first how that felt, given the reasons you started this business in the first place. It was devastating. Um, you know, it was like you're a kid building a beautiful house out of blocks and you've put great love and care into it and vulnerability and fragility and it's a piece of art for you and you're proud of it and somebody comes along and kicks it down and your mother doesn't come up to you to console you there's no one to console you you're just there with the devastation of this thing that was your child that you uh, put so much heart into building and now it's gone. You felt a sense of community and that you were giving back and then you felt that no one was around you afterwards? Oh, you can't even begin to describe the sense of community. So, you know, there were about 350 full-time employees, uh, like 250 or so in our in our new headquarters. So you're around those people all day long doing really fun, really creative stuff. And then when it's event season, you're around tens of thousands of people with the most incredible uh, stories, you know, people who've lost loved ones to AIDS, people who have HIV or AIDS, people who have breast cancer, older people who are terrified of riding their bikes 600 miles down the coast of California, but their son is HIV positive and there's nothing that's going to stop them. People with all kinds of, you know, physical disabilities, but they're doing these arduous events anyway. There's just so much love and feeling and emotion. The film t talks about what was a significant contributor to the demise of your company, the scrutiny around the amount of money going to overhead costs in particular. At the time, what did you feel that spending allowed you to accomplish? Well, it allowed us to hire really great people. Um, it allowed us to uh, do uh, marketing in a way that nonprofits don't do it. You know, full page, full color ads in the New York Times on Sunday, page two of the arts and leisure section so that we had huge exposure, you know, national television advertising and paying full rate for that stuff so that we didn't get uh, relegated to a three o'clock in the morning slot where no one was going to see it. 
Um, and then also the quality of the experience, right? You're gonna if you're gonna take six thousand people on a three day walk from Santa Barbara to Malibu, or you're gonna take fifteen hundred people on a bike ride for six days from Fairbanks to Anchorage, Alaska, or across the Continental Divide in Montana, you better know what you're doing. And you better have the right logistics in place. Um, and, and those things better be done well and be done on time. So that's where we were investing the dollars. And, you know, it's expensive to recruit through advertising 6,000 people in Chicago to do a breast cancer three-day walk. And it's expensive to take care of their meals and their showers and their housing and their medical needs and massage and audiovisual equipment and gray water and black water hauling. I mean, the complexity of it was amazing. So the fact that we were able to return, you know, on average 56, 57 cents of every dollar back to the causes is, is pretty remarkable. And we should mention Pilata Teamworks was was a private for-profit company that organized events on behalf of charities. It wasn't a registered charity itself. Right. We were a for-profit company, and we charged a fixed production fee for each event. So we didn't do commission-based fundraising. We didn't get paid a percentage. And um, But because you know the expenses might be 40%, people thought 40% was coming to us. More specifically, <laughs> they thought 40% was coming to me. Well, I would be a very, very wealthy <laughs> man right now if that were the case. And battling those... those um, that misinformation was a big, big task. And I got to say, part of it was our fault. Because if you go right now to PilataTeamworks.com, um, you know, 20 years later, you can look at every specific event and you can see we posted how much we raised, what our fee was, how much we charged for that event, what we spent on marketing, what we spent on logistics, what percentage remained after all of that. Maybe foolishly, I felt, no, I, I, we're building a brand here. We want people to trust us. I want to be completely transparent about everything. But that gets tough when people are operating out of the wrong context in terms of judging you, you know? Stephen, let me bring you in here because you met Dan, as I understand it, around the time the AIDS rides first started. But then you also called him up on the day his company failed. What do you remember about that call? Well, I think... That phone call, I was actually in Canada uh, doing a production scout. I think what I feel, what I felt then was bewilderment. What I feel now, and in listening to Dan talk about this, is what I've learned over the years since. How what Dan went through is what pretty much every charity goes through not as dramatically necessarily, but I think almost as painfully. And I've gone from making a, a film for a, a close friend of mine who I'd known for years into becoming a passionate believer in if we are going to save this world from what seems to be getting um, an environment that is more and more dangerous, we are going to have to unleash the sector, the charitable sector, and all the charities in it in the same way that Dan was able to do until he was so misunderstood. At the time, though, Stephen, did, did any of the criticisms, the coverage that Dan was was facing, did that give you pause at the time? No, because I, I knew that, you know, for instance, he gave so much money to AIDS, to the, to the research and aid, so much unrestricted funds at a time when there was still a lot of hostility around 
with the whole gay world in a way, I would say, they were there in the thick of it, really solving problems. So to me, I felt I could, I knew that Dan was a, a very good man and very honest and scrupulously careful about funding something he's been, he's been on me about as we've made this movie as well. So no, I had no doubts that, that there was something that was really wrong and it wasn't him. So Dan, you, you take that, that moment of, of deep personal turmoil and loss. It's quite an emotional moment in, in the film. You're quite honest about that. And, and you turn this into a TED talk uh, and it deals with a lot of the areas you feel nonprofits are forced to operate at a disadvantage. Uh, marketing, you've talked about taking risks and also compensation. Uh, and, and that's one that, that uh, gets a lot of people talking, gets, it's seen as controversial by some, as you know. What do you think the, the chief executive of a charitable organization should be allowed to make? Whatever it takes to find the person who can solve the problem. See, people like to have fun academic arguments about these things and make it about compensation or make it about the measurement. Should we use overhead? Should we use something? And for me, that's not what it's about. It's about solving problems. You know, if you look in Canada or the U.S., if you look at rates of child poverty, static for the last 50 years, suicide rates increasing for the last 50 years, illiteracy rates static for the last 50 years. Okay, so if you want a system, if you want an approach that doesn't really change anything, don't change a damn thing because we got a system that's really good at keeping things the same. It's not about the academics of compensation. It's about, well, if you if if you if you could find an Elon Musk capable of ending hunger, is there any price that's too high to pay? Some people tell me, well, what should a charity spend on overhead? Or like mm -hmm. you just asked, what should they spend on their CEO? Well, that depends. And in most of these cases, we're dealing with life or death issues. So the answer mm -hmm. is whatever it takes. But you're also dealing with, as you, as you know, uh, perception and what people, you know, people who can maybe give $10, people who can maybe give 50 or or $100, how they perceive what is happening yes. and where the money is going. And you know that executive salaries in the for-profit sector are certainly a lightning rod and under a lot of scrutiny. The Economic Policy Institute says CEO pay in that sector has skyrocketed by more than 1,200% since 1978. So when people are trying to get their heads around what, what you're saying, uh, are you advocating that nonprofits follow that same kind of path? What's, uh, what's, what CEO salary is skyrocketing? Tell me which one is skyrocketing. The econom I'm quoting the Economic Policy Institute. Generally, since 1978, more than 1,200% CEO pay has gone up. To what? In 2022, CEOs were paid 344 times as much as a typical worker, whereas in 1965, they were paid non, 21 times as a typical worker. Not at nonprofits. I'm saying, where do you draw the line for nonprofits? Do you think they should follow suit? Well, you raised the question about yeah. perception. And for too long, the nonprofit sector has said, because donors perceive high overhead as the opposite of high impact, we should not have high overhead. But if you know that high overhead actually leads to high impact, then perhaps rather than tell donors what they want to hear because of their current perceptions, perhaps you should change donor perceptions. And that's what my entire life's work has been about for the last 25 years. That's what this movie is about. Can, can, I, can I step in here for a second? Sure, of course, Stephen, yeah. Because first of all, Dan is my friend. 
And I can see how he has been, this has come at him time and time again, to take the comparison of what CEOs make in the for-profit sector and apply it to what's going on in the nonprofit sector seems to me to be frankly irresponsible. Well, I'm not saying that's how much people Wait, are making. Finish. I'm asking, me, is there is there a line? You know, the line is why the movie is so important. Because what I discovered as I made this movie, and it was a discovery, was that almost every CEO of a nonprofit and all the people underneath them have made decisions in their life to try and do something good in the world. It's a very, very different ethos from what the for-profit sector is. The for-profit sector can be very valuable. But in the nonprofit sector, I found 99.9% of the people involved with it are very good people. And they aren't interested in making a fortune. They're really profoundly interested in trying to solve these problems. And the problems are not getting solved. And the reason I made the movie was to put together the persuasive arguments that Dan has made in the TED Talk and bring an emotional component to it. I worked very hard to turn this not into a documentary that was just talking about facts and figures, but a documentary that spoke to unleashing a sector to do their job. And this is the movie, I think, that begins that conversation. I was more than roll up the sleeves and fight about this because or at least try to discuss it. I guess from my perspective, asking a question isn't isn't an attack. Um, But I did. My next question was actually going to be, Stephen, about how you take these these concepts, these ideas, these provocative arguments, and then turn this into a film? Well, I felt that the emotional stories were very important. The tragedies that unfolded for a lot of really motivated heroes was an important piece of it. But what became more important was to take the audience down to sort of the darkest place that I think we generally feel about the future. I'm from Hollywood, you know, I I, I spent my life in Hollywood. And generally the Hollywood movies and most of the movies in the world are that the future is apocalyptic. And I wanted to take us down to the darkest place where most of us, I think, feel now that it's hopeless and take the movie ultimately to the place that I think the charitable sector promises, which is profound hope. And the suspicion and the cynicism and the sense of hopelessness gets gently and lovingly deconstructed and put away and we actually go together right left and center and there's been so much so much separation in the world and actually solve these problems and i think dan's conversation that's gone on for all these years is the key which is why i've spent so many years making a movie by the way under the same old ethos that's existed all along which is no money, struggling, donations, all those kinds of things. But you know what? I've never been happier because I feel like this movie really speaks to hope, profound hope. You're listening to As It Happens. I'm Neil Kirksal, and I'm speaking with writer and activist Dan Pallotta, as well as filmmaker Stephen Gyllenhaal about their new documentary, Uncharitable. And Dan, let me ask you, you know, on one hand, I think uh, people who are considering giving to charities, they want to know they're reputable and they they want to be able to find out information. On the other hand, sometimes people bristle when they feel that those charities are too slick. What would you say to, to people who are listening who feel that way? Because that's a very difficult line to ride for people who are trying to affect change and do good. We live in this world of consumption, right, where... People are inundated and indoctrinated from the youngest age with messages to 
drink Coca-Cola and buy the new Apple Watch and purchase Air Jordans and go see this movie. It's a hypnosis, right? And because we don't allow the nonprofit sector to spend money on advertising, we don't want that. We want all the money to go to the cause. That means that the nonprofit sector is not out there competing, making it a compassionate world in addition to or in a, in a balance um, with consumption. And so sometimes people say, well, I don't want the charity spending money on fundraising. Well, think about what that means. What is fundraising? Fundraising is an investment in getting other people to give. So when you say, I don't want the charity spending any money on fundraising, you're literally saying you want them to rely on you all the time, increasingly. And fundraising is also not just this mechanical exercise in the transfer of money, but it is an investment in building civil society and strengthening civil society and getting people up and off of their sofas away from their devices and invested in the great causes of their time, whether that's participating in an AIDS ride or giving big money to a homeless charity. And, and there is no other element of civil society chartered to get people involved in the great causes of their time. There is no other. It's the nonprofit sector. But if you don't allow the nonprofit sector to go out there and enroll people in that, then you're gonna you're not gonna have a very strong civil society. And that's essentially what we have. You know, ten years on from your TED talk, Dan, I wonder obviously you wanted to make this movie with Steven to continue to get the message out there. So that signals to me that you feel that, you know, it's not enough change has happened. But where do you think? I mean, do you feel better about where things are at 10 years since you you had that that you gave that speech? Yeah, a conversation has begun. Right. And that's the beginning of possibility. It went, at first, there is no notion of another option. And then a new conversation begins a new possibility. It takes a lot of energy and a lot of momentum to get that conversation going. Um, six weeks after the TED Talk, the first result was three of the big evaluating agencies in the United States started to see the writing on the wall because the TED Talk went viral and they issued a joint press release. The Better Business Bureau, Charity Navigator, and GuideStar telling the general public overhead is not the thing you should most be asking about. You should be asking about impact. Then um, the Ford Foundation came out. Darren Walker came out and said that this overhead thing is a charade. Frankly, we've known for years that the money we give to our grantees isn't enough to cover the administration of their projects. And then they joined hands with five other big foundations to double their overhead percentages to grantees. So a conversation has begun. Um, but I would say it's where gay marriage was in the 1940s, right? It's just begun. If you go out on the street... There's still very old thinking about this. You ask anyone on the street, what should you ask when giving to a charity? And they'll say, well, I want to know how high the overhead is, and I want to know what they pay the CEO. And they don't know that overhead is not a measure of impact. And, and really, my interest over the last 20 years has been, how do you change the public's mind? And one of the things that has encouraged me enormously is I can go into a room 
can be 20 college students. It can be 5,000 people at a big conference. They don't really know what I'm going to say. Maybe their arms are folded. An hour later, there's a long line of people coming up to me saying, I never knew this. I never thought about these things. I'm never going to ask that question again. I'm going to ask this question instead. People aren't obstinate about this. They're just too busy to understand the economics of the nonprofit sector. And that's understandable. When you explain it to them in 45 minutes, 75% of people will go, great, let's do it a new way. So that's the real purpose of the movie is to take the next step in changing minds at scale. And what we've seen in the audiences that have seen the movie is it works. It's persuasive. Like people, people's minds are changed. And it know? shows people who are, who are working in the nonprofit sector who are doing things differently or at least trying to do things differently. I'm wondering, Stephen, how you decided who to interview, who to include in this project. And I'm thinking in particular of the Coney 2012 example and Jason Russell. Some of our listeners may remember that film. It went viral. It raised awareness. But but it was also criticized for oversimplifying the situation on the ground in Uganda. So how did you decide who to interview and include to make your argument? You know, it's an interesting question and to try and really answer it as honestly as possible. Um, this film really started as so many charities start with really no money. There was, it, was, it was a wing and a prayer operation all the way along. You know, I think one of the things I have been saying recently, because these are people that I reached out to, I was also, you know, could not do this full time. So I, I have some regrets. I actually want to make it uncharitable too, in which there are a whole lot less <laughs> white guys. I mean, and I think also we're talking about a, a TV series because this is a long-term thing that has to be resolved. I do think a lot of people donate because they don't feel great about their lives. They don't feel terrific. And they feel good when they give money. They feel good about that. And they keep doing it. But I don't think there's a tremendous amount of hope involved in that transaction. I think what, what the sector can deliver at a time that we need it is hope, that there's a hope we can actually change. There is hope in the film, uh, certainly, and, and examples of organizations doing things differently. And I'm thinking of people, uh, including the head of Chicago's YWCA, Dory McWhorter, who is featured prominently in the film. You, you interview her about an exchange-traded fund that donates profits back to women's empowerment, work that, that helps empower women. Tell us a bit more about Dory. Um, Dory, well, Dory has a really interesting mix of charitable giving, for-profit. She's kind of a force of nature, as most of the people in the film are. I think I think the thing is, is that Dan sort of talks about, it's not like we're trying to turn this, or Dan's trying to turn this, or Dory's trying to turn this into a charity working like business. It's just using some of the tools that they have. And some of those tools are wonderful marketing, you know, exciting marketing. Marketing is about real hope, authentic hope. And I think she does. She wants to make a billion dollar enterprise that solves these problems. And, you know, I think as the film is just getting out into the world, we're going to start to be gathering more and more examples of how this kind of thinking really does bring hope. And I would say, you know, this is one of the things I talk about a lot now is the need for nonprofit organizations to understand what capital is. They think of capital as whatever is in their petty cash. Well, if you got $17,000 in your petty cash, then your dreams are limited in scope to $17,000. That's not how Elon Musk 
thinks about it. You know, uh, he was pretty much broke at a certain point with Tesla. So if he thought, well, let me look at what's in the savings account at Tesla, that's what I can use to grow. That would have been the end of it. But instead, he went to the capital markets. Nonprofits need to start to ask, what's my dream? What do I want to achieve? And what capital do I need to make that happen rather than what little capital do I have and what little dream can I make happen um, with that? I believe they, they need to and they deserve to be able to dream every bit as big as Elon Musk is dreaming, every bit as big as uh, Jeff Bezos and Mark Zuckerberg are dreaming. God knows, you know, solving for hunger and illiteracy and all of these other things is more important than our ability to post on Facebook or or on Twitter. Yet we give those entities all of the freedom to pay people billions of dollars and then someone gets criticized for being paid 700000 in a charity. We need to dream really, really big and not be embarrassed about dreaming really, really big about solving those problems because that's what we all want. Dan, Stephen, we do have to leave it there, but thank you very much for your time. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you a lot. Thank Take you. Care. You too. Dan Pallotta is an activist, philanthropist, and the subject of the new documentary, Uncharitable. Stephen Gyllenhaal is its director. We reach them in Topsfield, Massachusetts, and Los Angeles, California, respectively. You've been listening to the As It Happens podcast. Our show can be heard Monday to Friday on CBC Radio 1, following the world at 6. You can also listen to the show online at cbc.ca slash AIH or on the CBC Listen app or wherever you get your podcasts. Thanks for listening. I'm Neil Kirksal. And I'm Chris Howden. For more CBC Podcasts, go to cbc.ca slash podcasts.